Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week we will be talking about German foreign policy. A little more than a year after Olaf Scholz delivered his Zeitenwender speech to the Bundestag, there's been much debate about how much has been actually achieved. How successful has the Zeitenwender been? What steps must Germany take in order to play a more active role in world affairs? And I could not have a more interesting guest to discuss all of these and many other questions than Christoph Heusken. Christoph served as Angela Merkel's chief foreign policy advisor for 12 years from 2005 to 2017 and afterwards uh, worked as Germany's ambassador to the United Nations from 2017 to 2021. And in 2022, he succeeded Wolfgang Ischinger as the chairman of the Munich Security Conference. Before all of those things, he had a very active career, not least in, in Brussels, where he was part of the creation of a European foreign policy under Javier Solana. Christoph has drawn on this extraordinary career of shaping and implementing German and European foreign policy in a book which he has just published. It's called Führung und Verantwortung, Leadership and Responsibility in English, Angela Merkel's Foreign Policy and Germany's Future Role in the World. Christoph, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very, very much, Mark, for having me. So maybe we can just start with, with the moment that we're in now. And I'd like to, to look back on your experience later and, and hear some of the amazing stories that you have in your book. But you've just come back from uh, organizing a, a hugely successful Munich security conference, the first that you did as, as the chairman. And I think uh, it was a very interesting way that you put the event together. And one of the striking things about it was that you made quite a concerted effort to invite a lot of representatives from non-Western countries there and had various different panels about how the West and the rest are talking about the war uh, in Ukraine. There's been a lot of debate about that, a lot of disappointment amongst Western countries that the, the coalition on supporting Ukraine, punishing Russia is not larger uh, than it is. And you, you know, somebody who spent a long time in New York talking to people from all over the world, maybe you can start with that. Give us a sense of, you know, after seeing all of these different representatives coming together in Munich, where you think we're at in terms of the rule-based order? Oh, thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Mark. You took notice of um, the changes that um, I introduced into this year's Munich Security Conference. But before I talk a bit about, um, you know, the disappointment or expectations from the so-called Global South, let me say that what I found also reassuring was that the the alliance uh, supporting Ukraine remains very strong, um, and that was very important. It was demonstrated by the largest ever delegation from U.S. Congress that attended the Munich Security Conference, the vice president, and the message was very strong. We will support Ukraine as long as it takes, as the German chancellor put it in his speech. So that was uh, reassuring, at least to a, to a certain degree. But I had indeed invited representatives of the Global South because that was one of the really strongest 
impacts on, on my view on the political scene was when I was served in New York between 2017 and 2021 was that we have to pay much more attention to the so-called global south, to Africa, Latin America, Asia, because we think we have the right argument and we are in favor of the UN and the UN Charter, etc., that um, uh, we are the largest donor of, um, at least uh, the US and Germany, they are the largest donor of development aid, humanitarian aid. We say, well, somehow those countries will more or less follow um, follow us. And um, there, it was very clear for me in New York that this is not the case. It is very clear that we are really in a competition, in a global competition where China and, and Russia who are now even more in the same camp as they were before, where they are um, um, actually leading a um, a fight, a a competition, a polarization, where they try to gain support for their view of the world, for their view of the conflict. And um, we have to pay attention, um, if not... um, one of these days, um, for instance, in the General Assembly, we will be faced with a majority of countries um, voting with China and, and Russia. And therefore, it is very important that we take the concerns of these countries much more seriously, much more serious than we have done in the past. And at the same time, also make clear to these countries in much regular contexts what you know how is our take on the situation and why is it that we fight this war why is why we defend the un charter and rules-based order and uh, why china and russia are actually trying to rewrite this order so there are a lot of reasons why we have to um, be much more engaged with the countries of the global south and the munich security conference try to um, make a contribution there we can only do that of course with sending some signals, inviting people, giving a podium, hoping that um, the media pick it up. But it has to be something much more regular, taken up by by the relevant governments. So you spent a long time talking to people from all over the world who throw accusations of of hypocrisy at the West and lots of talk about how this rule-based order was made without a lot of other countries and you know a lot of these arguments have come to the fore in the the debate about Ukraine at the moment what do you think the main lessons apart from taking them seriously showing up talking to them which is you know something which we haven't done such a great job of over the last year are there specific ways that you or arguments that you think um, would be more effective in in terms of getting beyond the, the baggage which um, many Western decisions have when you take them into a forum like the UN? Well, first of all, we have to do something very, very simple. And that is we have to be in touch with these countries much more regularly. Of course, you can do it at the UN, but you have to do it at their, at their capitals. You have to be active in their countries Looking at my own country, I see it in absolute underrepresentation. Although we have embassies all over the globe, when you come to any African country, or normal African country, Germany may have some three or four diplomats there. And um, but when you look across the street to the 
Chinese embassy in many countries, they have like 100 diplomats and uh, uh, much more active. So we have to be more present. We have at the same time to visit much more regularly. The Chinese foreign minister, after being elected, went um, directly to Africa. The Lavrov is said of having been since after his country invaded Ukraine, Lavrov has been four times in Africa and trying to rally support and telling the Africans about their narrative. And while you ask our foreign ministers, secretary of states, um, foreign minister, they have not been there that often. So we just have to be there much more present and um, they have to uh, understand that we are not there just you know, to make demarches on a particular vote in the General Assembly, but we are there because we are, con- we are really concerned. We want to listen to their needs, to their arguments, respond to it. And uh, I think if we, if we do that, if they see that they are seen on eye level, we have a better chance. Because when you look at the instruments, when you look at the means at our disposal, we are actually, at least in principle, in a much better uh, stage. We talking about Germany, second largest donor of development aid worldwide, second largest donor humanitarian aid, whereas the second largest donor to the UN system. But we are not able to put all these means into um, to get results out of it. So what does that mean? I think we have to be much more visible. We also have, from a German perspective, have to put the different instruments that we have into one basket, you know, humanitarian aid, development aid, investment. Um, we have to see that you know, we get private business involved and, and uh, then we are able also, if we put all these instruments together, to respond to the needs of countries in the global south who um, you know, need investment um, in major infrastructure projects and uh, they usually turn to the Chinese. And uh, so more more affection, more presence, more regular presence and pooling of instruments. A lot of time has to go into this. So you make a very persuasive case in the book about how we need a more active foreign policy. And you also talk about some of the, the kind of institutional means like combining the RR with the BMZ in a more effective way so that we can do these things. And I'd love to, to move on to, to talking more about uh, both about your experience of dealing with Putin and Russia, because that's obviously something which is a fascinating part of the book, but also about the transatlantic relationship as we look forward, the two big things which which um, uh, you've thought about and been involved with as much as anybody in, in, in the world. But before we do that, just as a kind of smaller side, we recently heard about this new deal which the Chinese brokered between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And... Uh, Iran is a country that you were very involved with diplomacy towards, both in Brussels and and also from Berlin. How significant do you think that is? Is that partly a, a kind of symptom of us leaving too much space for 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 China on on the world stage? Is this the beginning of a new world order? You you end up having a deal like that brokered by by China rather than by the Europeans or or Washington. Yeah, it's what is happening there is a demonstration of of us, the transatlantic um, community, uh, failing. I mean, we shut ourselves into the foot when, after all these efforts that that went into the uh, JCPOA, that went into the nuclear agreement with Iran, um, when the Trump administration uh, came, they um, stopped all this and um, didn't implement it anymore. 
and we tried somehow to keep it alive. But um, it was, of course, extremely, extremely difficult. And now with um, where Russia stands and China stands, this this what what I thought would have been potentially a basis for regaining of influence in the region was gone. And um, we see that um, our American friends have basically withdrawn from, from the Middle East and uh, they're no longer as present as they as they used to be. So um, people are looking around, uh, look around at other um, actors. And these are, you know, most of the countries there are not democratic countries, so they don't mind looking at uh, authoritarian countries that are engaged and uh, offer their services. And uh, with the U.S. not present, with the European Union not getting its um, act together and um, really being a player, although we could, but not being a player, then, you know, China is filling the void. And so in in this very difficult situation between Iran and and Saudi Arabia, it was the Chinese that got on, on the scene. And uh, I don't know how much they're responsible for brokering it. But, uh, you know, we have all of a sudden a rapprochement between a Saudi Arabia and Iran, which uh, to a certain degree is positive because uh, it lowers the chances of um, getting into a war there, which, you know, we there was with... Um, you know, Yemen um, and the Houthis fighting uh, to a certain degree on behalf of the Iranians against uh, Saudi Arabia. I think that helps now that maybe tensions around Yemen may calm down. But overall, it um, strengthens also uh, more the reputation of Iran. And Iran maybe has, um, you know, the, the government will see this as a support in a situation where because of their horrible acts um, against their own population, they are in the defensive. So it is a bit positive, but overall we see uh, that authoritarian countries um, work together with the help of another authoritarian country. And that is not good for the rules-based order. That's not good for our interests. So let's talk now about, about the war in Ukraine. In your book, you often refer to Angela Merkel's unique relationship with Putin. She seems to have had a way of of handling with him, uh, sorry, of handling him or dealing with him that a few other Western leaders did. And I think she was crucial also to to building European unity, one of the things which um, has managed to, to, to draw us through the current crisis. I think a lot of the roots of this crisis, but also of, of our response to the crisis were sown while you were working for for, um, Chancellor Merkel. Can you talk a bit about how you think we got to where we're at at the moment? Were you surprised by the the decision to to launch a full-scale war, by the way that that Putin has been behaving? Is it the same Putin that you were dealing with when you were working for the Chancellor? Russia has evolved, and um, I dealt with Putin until 2017, it was a, a Russia which was aggressive, without any doubt. They launched their invasion of Ukraine, first Crimea and then Donbas, um, Luhansk and Donetsk in 2015, we, or 14, 15. At that time, it was possible through the leadership of uh, um, Chancellor Merkel and, by the way, President Hollande of France, 
to get Poroshenko and Putin around uh, the table in June of um, 14 already at the Normandy summit. And the Chancellor and Hollande, they were able then after the escalation in early 2015 um, to come to an agreement in Minsk. The Minsk agreement, which was a difficult agreement, but it were able to achieve this. It would, it could have brought, if implemented, a, um, a stabilization, even peace in the between Ukraine and Russia, if implemented, as I said. So we tried very hard, the Chancellor in particular did, to, on the one hand, keep sanctions uh, in place against uh, Russia after the invasion of Ukraine, at the same time keep European unity with regard to sanctions, keep the transatlantic unity, which was, by the way, very strong during these days. So it was possible to somehow you know, maintain the fragile situation of February, um, February 15. Now, I don't know exactly because I was near what happened between 17 and 21 after I've left. But one thing I know, and this is what the chancellor was very concerned about, and this partially answers your question. The chancellor, when I met her in early, no, in late 21, she was still chancellor um, in 21. The one thing she was very concerned is that COVID, the effects of the virus, had changed Putin. Because Putin, from early 2020 onwards, had not met with any Western or foreign leader of weight who would be ready to tell him the truth, to tell him that um, what he was coming up with in his fantasies was not true. And since um, this didn't happen for two years, the chancellor at the end of 21, or he was very concerned that Putin may turn into a wrong direction. So I think the fact that Putin was there alone in his dacha, not allowing advisors, and, and he had only Jay Sayers, you know, yes, Sayers around him, they didn't get actually to him, let alone foreign people. I think that Putin then believed in his fantasies about this very strong Russian armed forces, about what he thought that Ukraine, he believes until today that there is Ukraine no Ukrainian nationality or identity, that the Ukrainians actually are Russians, that they um, also didn't have a strong armed forces and he country had one of the strongest. So this is what led him into this aggression where he had a very um, hard wake-up call then when he missed to achieve his objectives. But And coming to the current period, what I'm very concerned about, Mark, is that while we continue to support Ukraine, we see that um, Ukraine needs over a longer period support. We um, are somehow satisfied now that we sent these howitzers and uh, we sent um, uh, now also uh, tanks, but we see on the ground that we are in there are tough battles. So what I think we need to send the message to the political leadership is um, here in, in Europe, in the US, we need to continue the strong support for Ukraine because Putin basically believes that we don't have sustained power. The Ukrainians won't, the Europeans won't, the Americans won't. And therefore, just by staying there, continuing to with the aggression at some stage, uh, Putin believes that we will somehow carve in or 
ask Zelensky to make a compromise he doesn't want to. So this is right now the point where we have to stay strong, we have to stay united, we have to continue to support Ukraine with um, money, with weapons, and we must not fall into the trap of some kind of Ukraine fatigue. Absolutely. So we're obviously all very active on different ways of trying to find ways of, of increasing the resolve of Europeans on leopards, on other kinds of issues. But one of the big questions that a lot of people are asking is, is you know, how this ends and where it leads towards. You were involved in Normandy, as you described earlier, working with the Chancellor, with President Hollande and Putin in, in trying to, to find a way of at least stabilizing the, the situation after the annexation of Crimea and the beginning of the war in Donbass. Unfortunately, that Minsk settlement didn't end up resolving the, the conflict or creating the foundations for, for a stable peace. Has that changed the way that you think about the challenge now? I mean, how do you think that this war is likely to end? I mean, if we want to have a free democratic Ukraine that can manage its own future, we are going to have to have some negotiations at the end because um, there's no other way of, of making sure that Ukraine doesn't live in permanent fear of the war starting again. But obviously, we're not in a position now where there is much scope on either side to to come to a negotiated settlement. But if we look forward, how do you think this, um, you know, how do you think we can put ourselves in a position where you could have that future for Ukraine? And what role will diplomacy play in it? Yes, I think that's the most uh, important question right now. I'm afraid that we are still far away, or at least uh, we are not uh, certainly not there yet where diplomacy could set in. I believe that we will witness still some time with um, you know, military fighting and all the victims that this, this war costs. And I see um, time for diplomacy. One can prepare this, but I, I think that the time of diplomacy has come at the moment when the Ukrainians are of the opinion that to continue to advance and to continue to get back territory comes at the cost which is not proportional to the amount of victims that such an offensive to regain all of its territory would cost. So I think that um, we, we have to be um, at that situation where then you know Zelensky will may decide that yes it's time for negotiations it's time to kind of agree to a ceasefire or maybe even without negotiations come to the conclusions maybe we stop here and we have a, a situation as we have between north and south korea without a peace treaty but you know, highly armed but uh, not much much happening actually on the ground but of course this standoff there this may come at a certain moment we are certainly not not there yet what we need to prepare or think of of course is in particular if we from our side encourage then Zelensky to agree with the Russians on on uh, some kind of stabilization or demarcation or even a peace deal. The one thing which we have to make different from last time, we have then to give the Ukrainians a, you know, a very solid security guarantee. 
even we have to consider at a certain stage also now actually have them enter enter NATO so that they can rely on Article 5 if the Russians should uh, try and again attack them. Because this is the experience of the Ukrainians that they cannot trust the Russians, that the paper bearing a signature of the Russians is not, you know, it doesn't have the any any value, not even the value of the piece of paper that's been written. Too often have they been disappointed, to say the least, by the Russians with the so-called Budapest Memorandum in 94, where the Russians promised them their territorial integrity and sovereignty if in return they would give up the nuclear weapons, which they did. Um, also, the, the um, Minsk agreements, they was also broken by the Russians. So they need some kind of guarantee that next time around the Russians will not break the, the treaty. So what I see, as I said, at some stage where we are not near that, where maybe both sides are exhausted, say that costs too much victims to continue. Um, and this is widely shared in the population, which is uh, important ingredient. Then we may say something, see something like Minsk 3, but with a strong security component to protect Ukraine from further adventures of the Russians. One of the things I think we do need to talk about is the role of, of the US. We're both obviously very strong Atlanticists, and you were talking at the beginning about what an incredible display of American support there was at the Munich Security Conference, which comes after a year where the US has been engaged in European security in a way that it hadn't been for, for decades. And we all know that, that Ukraine wouldn't exist today were it not for that support as an independent country. But at the same time, lots of people are, are looking towards 2024 with, with some kind of worries. You were in New York during the, the Trump administration and had to deal with a slightly less predictable and maybe a bit less friendly towards Europe administration uh, during those days. Um, Trump might very well come back as the Republican candidate. Or, and um, even if he isn't, the the other people who are vying to get the, the nomination of the Republican Party are echoing a lot of his rhetoric about America first. Um, and um, what anyway, whatever happens in this election, we all know from 2016 that politics can be very uncertain. What do you think Europeans should be doing now to prepare for political, you know, the dangers of political change in, in Washington? What do you think of the the work that's been done so far over the last year when we had this very powerful wake-up call on the 24th of February last year. What would you be advising the Chancellor to to do? Are you uh, in your old job at the moment? Well, first, I would say, you know, let's do everything to preserve this transatlantic unity. So um, continue to reach out to Congress. We had the largest ever uh, Congress delegation at Munich and uh, Senator McConnell, the former majority leader, even brought expressively some you know, young Republican senators, congressmen with him, just to make sure that they get this exposure to European security, um, to American commitment, also the reliance on the, on the US. And I think this is what is appreciated all over Europe, just to repeat myself, that how close this cooperation between the US and Europe is, how much um, you know, it was 
key for Ukraine's survival that the U.S. was ready to invest and deploy and send over so much, um, so much weapons. So that is very important. But um, you, know, you 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 point to the problem now. It will take until the end of next year, the end, the end of 24, until uh, there is a new American administration um, or new president is voted. Um, I hope that by then maybe we uh, or we have gotten much closer to a resolution of the conflict. But um, we need to do everything as Europeans to continue and tell our American friends how important European security also is for U.S. security, for the U.S. economy and how much it's money well spent if you keep your troops over in in Europe. But at the same time, and this is the main message also I try to convey to the German government, and many do that, is we have to become serious. It cannot be that 10 years after the Wales summit um, in Germany, the expenditure um, for um, for weapons um, is still not at 2% GDP as we committed in Wales 10 years ago. It's rather at 1.5. And uh, we need to step up to the plate. We need to fulfill expectations because this is basically the Trump argument at the time. Say, well, when I see as the contributions by the Europeans for their own security is, is not adequate, um, when I see it in my own country, US, so why do I spend so much money and invest so much also in European security if the Europeans don't do it. So number one, yes, keep close to the US. Number two, do your homework. And finally, become serious when it comes to fulfilling the uh, 2% uh, spending on on arms, 2% of, of GDP, because this would get also the respect of Trump. And this would make it more likely that if Trump is elected or somebody of his uh, the same mindset that they can understand and they can even put, you know, take the record for themselves that um, uh, finally Europe and Germany has um, fulfilled its obligations. So that's um, try everything to to maintain transatlantic unity. Number two, we have to do our homework in Germany. And to what extent do you regret the fact that when you were working in in Berlin for the, for different governments with Chancellor Merkel that you were unable to to change some of these long standing challenges of, of German foreign policy whether it was on the state of the Bundeswehr and defense spending whether it was about um, Nord Stream two dependency on China I mean you you have written about all of those things in your book and, and look at some of the kind of internal coalition politics around those different issues. But do you think that, that there are lessons to be learned from that period as well? No, absolutely. I think that we have to, um, also this government has to understand that business as usual cannot um, and will not continue. I mean, there are a lot of explanations why you know, Nord Stream 2 came about it has to do a lot with our past, with our feeling of guilt or gratitude toward the Russians. It has to do a lot uh, because of the fact that in the past, even in you know in the Cold War, Russia was always a reliable partner with energy supplies. So 
what happened last year is a breach of civilization, a breach of tradition, a breach in our relationship. I think there are still many people in this country who have to struggle with the idea that change um, has happened, that things will not go back to the normal and uh, this will take leadership, a lot of explanation. But I think at least the majority of the people have understood the, the message. And as I said earlier, we have to see that we deliver on our promises, in particular, that we um, you know, get available more, more arms for the German armed forces. And also, we put aside enough money to support the uh, Ukrainian armed forces. I think that's all we got time for in terms of our discussions about the future and uh, and the past. But there is one thing left to do on our podcast, and that's our bookshelf section. Obviously, everybody should get Christoph's book, Führung und Verantwortung, for their bookshelf at the moment. But Christoph, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, if I may go back to last year, and since you're so kind to recommend my book, I would also uh, highly recommend your your book of last year, which is The Age of Unpeace, How Connectivity Causes Conflict, which has a lot to do with the topics that we that we discuss today. So I recommend all listeners to have Mark Leonard's and, and my book in their bookshelf. Okay, that's a, it's an embarrassing kind of loving, but it's a nice place to, to end the podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do head to whatever platform you've used to download this episode from and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it'd be great if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help. We'll put links up to all of our publications that we mentioned at our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Christoph Heusken and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Marlene Riedel. And I'd like to use this opportunity also to thank Marlene for all the incredible work she's done on the podcast for the last few years. Sadly, this will be the last podcast as she's editing, as she's moving on to bigger and better things beyond ECFR. But we'd all like to thank her very much for being such an integral part in the life of this podcast for such a long time. Thank you, Marlene. Thank you.